Hey, we get the opportunity this morning to dive deeper, as Lindsay shared with you previous weeks, that we are looking week by week at different characters of the birth story of when Jesus was born and diving in. Um, last week, Lindsay talked about Joseph. We got to take a deep dive into who he was and what he had to offer us. And today, we're going to take a look um, at another story. So I'm a, we, we read earlier, but I'm going to read again. We're coming from Luke 2, and we're going to start in verse 8. It says this, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of God. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph there, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. So, um, before I get started, let's just pray real quick together. God, I pray that you would teach us more about who these people are in this story, who the shepherds are, what they have to offer us, and... um, where you might be calling us to today. I pray that we could empty our minds and come before you ready for what you might have for us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Lindsay offered to let me come up here and she said I could pick any character in the story of Christ's birth. Any story. And she even suggested more than once that I could, if I wanted to talk about Mary, the mother of God. And I told Nick, my husband, this, and he was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Just knowing that that's what I chose, because wouldn't you? But I just couldn't help that every time I thought about the story this year, I just kept coming back to those shepherds. And so I, I gave in to the, the call of the Lord, I'm assuming. And, and here we are, we're talking about the shepherds. Um, you know, and I, I, I don't know exactly what it is about them that drew me to them this year, but I kind of think that maybe it's that they're so relatable. You know, everybody else in, this, in the birth story of Jesus kind of gets these pronouncements about their character, or they show things that, that let us know kind of who they are that made them ready to be a part of this story. You know, we've got Mary, we've got Joseph, and 
and this whole cast of characters, Elizabeth and Zechariah, who were faithful and good and true. And then we have the shepherds who were just there. They did nothing to deserve to be a part of the story other than being just where they were. Um, and this thing happened to them, and they got a once, not a once in a lifetime, a once in the history of the world chance to see this magnificent thing. And so in order to prepare for today, I studied up as much as I could on first century shepherds. What do we know about them? Who were they? What were their names? All that thing, you know. And here's what I found. There is just a lot of debate, of course, about who they were, what they were about, and what the story was. On one hand, um, we've got a lot of texts that happened about the century after Jesus that were Jewish texts, but people say that they probably included oral traditions from, you know, even maybe before Jesus' time, in which people called shepherds um, lazy. They called them probably thieves, that most things that they had they probably stole. Um, it said that they were incompetent. They didn't know how to do anything other than keep animals who were pretty much tame anyway. Um, but then there's other scholars that w would argue, just given the grand scope of the Bible and who shepherds were throughout the Bible, you've got Abraham, you've got Moses, you've got David. It would be unlikely that the Jewish people would really give shepherds that bad of a rap. But regardless of where they landed on the spectrum during this night, at best, they were lower class laborers. At worst, um, they had a bad reputation for um, stealing things and not working hard. Um, I, I looked for, you know, this, this scene is so magnificent. It's been painted over and over again since pretty soon after it happened. We've got records from, I think, this wouldn't, the, the earliest one I found was from 1300, which was pretty cool. But I found um, one picture that was kind of my favorite. I think it might be on the slides. Um, I don't know that even this quite does it justice. But the thing that I love about it, that I feel like captures that piece of what I want us to look at, is not even so much the angel, but the shepherds. They just look so regular. Um, you know, most of the pictures that I see of shepherds from this night, they've got on like dazzling robes with like fur lined parts with the belt and the staff and they just look very magisterial. I don't know that that's a word, but I know that somebody will probably tell me later if it was. Um, but these guys are ragged. They are lower class laborers. They are men who work hard for what they do. They are men who don't have a lot of money to spend on many other things. They are men who don't look like they have um, a high reputation or clout in their community. They look like men who are sitting around working hard when something amazing happened to them. And so I wanna hold this picture of these men in our minds as we dive deeper into the shepherds. Um, here's the thing. As much as I can identify with these rowdy shepherds with no reputation that the Bible felt necessary to mention, as I reflect on their actual status in the world, 
I realize and recognize that I'm not as like them as I might like to think, as I might wish that I was. The truth is, for me, when I tell people things, people usually believe me. Um, because of my status in the world, you know, I'm a middle-class white person, American. So usually when I walk into a room, people give me the benefit of the doubt. Um, I went to college. I have a normal, respectable job. I haven't been to jail yet. Time will tell. Um, if I were to ask a bank to give me money, they would probably say yes because they would think that I probably could and probably would pay them back. Um, if I were to ask some of you for money, you might even say yes. I don't know that you should. Um, but even with all of that, if you found out that of all of the people in the world, I got the invitation for some super exclusive religious event, like let's say the Pope is going to come to America and he's only going to meet with one person and everybody can't wait to find out who it's going to be. And then you all find out that it's me. All of you who were just so willing to give me money would be like, I mean, she's not that great. Come on. Of all the people. Um, so maybe that puts the outrageousness of our story somewhat into, into perspective. Um, that it wasn't that, that God sent this host of angels to people like us. It was people like who we saw, who didn't hardly have clothes to wear, who had no reputation to speak of, who no one would lend any money to, who most people probably thought were thieves. Um, so all that to say, not that we can't find ways to identify with these down and out shepherds. We certainly can find so much hope in the truth and the fact that God honors and comes to us regardless of our status, regardless of who we are, regardless of what we feel like we have to offer or what we've done to earn it. Um, but I think when we also lose sight of how different we are than them, we might lose sight of what the story might have to teach us about who God's kingdom was for, what he valued what he saw as beautiful, what he um, held up as worthy, that, um, that we, we understand what it would be like to truly be on the lower rung of the global society and have the God of the universe send his army of heaven to come to you and sing the, the glories of the coming Messiah. It helps some um, when we think about the shepherds having this glorious meeting, not, not as a, you know, meeting with the Pope in which, you know, could happen potentially, but it's a concert of the armies of heaven proclaiming the good news of the Christ child, breaking into the earth, a sight that had never been seen before and will never be seen again. And it was reserved for a group of people, not even like me, but for the lower class working men. Um, who had not earned their way to the party, a group of men that could at best be described as lower-class laborers and at worst be described as incompetent, lazy thieves. So how on earth did they get the invite? 
What does that say about the God who sent the armies of heaven to the shepherds? And what does it say about the king whose kingdom they were announcing? Um, Here's what I think. It's the announcement of a very different kingdom. Um, A kingdom being established on earth in which Jesus said that the first would be last and the last would be first. In which all the people who thought that they deserved an invitation to the party ended up being too busy to even notice that the party was happening. Um, And the lower rung of the social ladder got the welcome wagon. Jesus tells a very similar story in the Gospels that a big party was happening and everybody who should have been there was just too busy to even know that it was happening. And so he flung open the doors to all of the people who didn't fit and didn't belong. It's the kingdom that instead of appointing trusted advisors to the king with great influence and vast wisdom, instead chose as his closest associates to the king, nobodies, with nothing to offer, professional fishermen, with no status, no political influence, and, you know, probably add some stink in there, like me, they might as well have been shepherds. It's the kingdom that regularly welcomed the scandalous, the poor, the unwell, and the unrighteous. So in that, it was very fitting that this this particular pronouncement ceremony would be held for this kind of king. You know, um, I don't know how much you pay attention to, like, international happenings, but any time that a royal birth happens in England, it's, like, a huge deal. The press shows up for, like, a week before it even happens, just jockeying for position. And, you know, there's, like, constantly people going, is he here yet? Is he here yet? Is he here yet? And then, you know, finally the baby is born. And then somehow, I, having given birth, I do not know how this is possible. Truly moments after the baby is born, you know, Prince William and Kate, like, bust out of the door. And they held up this newborn baby like it's Simba. And everybody just is like, ah. And there's a royal crier, I don't know if you knew about this, who just comes out and is like, hear ye, hear ye, this baby is born today, that we will, you know. And it's a very different thing. Um, It's a fancy affair, I'll say that. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody announce their presidential candidacy, but again, it's a big blowout. I mean, there's like power cannons and confetti and that person's face very large somewhere typically, even though they're also going to be there like in front of the camera. And it's usually about them and what they're going to do. Um, Because the way that a kingdom is announced typically tells us a lot about the kind of kingdom it's going to be and who it's going to be for. And I think that's what we see here. The kingdom that reserved its birth announcement for the lower class shows us the way that God holds up the poor and unseen of the world, not just as valuable, but as worthy. I certainly recognize that the poor and unseen of the world deserve my attention and my generosity but I don't know that I often recognize that they have something to offer me, that they have something to teach me, that they have something of value and worth that I could learn from, that they have something to teach me that I might not be able to find anywhere else. 
We could certainly go case by case in Jesus' life of all of the lower class, down and out characters that Jesus ends up mixing it up with um, and, and mining out the things that we, we could learn from, from each of these working class guys. Um, but let's stay here with the shepherds. These stinky guys who were maybe shifty, maybe incompetent, maybe thieves. Um, I want to take a dive into the heart of what struck me about the shepherds, where God was calling me to pay attention and learn from people who are very different from me, who come from a different world and a different time and a different place in the world's status. Uh, The first verse of our text said, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. This is my favorite part, which seems amazing because really amazing things happen throughout the the story. But this is where I want to set up camp for a minute. They were doing nothing other than keeping watch. Some might say that plays into their lazy vibe. I don't know. Um, In our day and age, this is so strange. No one I know does this. No one I know keeps watch. The shepherds keeping attentive watch throughout the night brings up the imagery in my mind of one of my favorite psalms. It comes from Psalm 130. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. That sounds so much like these shepherds. They were unbusy and unbothered by anything else than keeping watch for just what might be happening around them. As I sat with the story, I wondered why it was this group that got the visit. This group that got the call to meet the newborn Christ, that got the heads up to what God's master plan would be, that this baby would be the Messiah, that this coming to us would mean good news and great joy um, and peace on earth to whom he is pleased. They're the first ones outside of the immediate family who got a a peek into what God's master plan would be with this baby. Um, And I, you know, I think there's a lot of different theories about why it was the shepherds of all the people in the world that it could have been. Why was it the shepherds? And so there's a lot lot of reasons it could have been, but I think right now my favorite reason that it could have been the shepherds that got this announcement is because they were paying attention. They were up. They were watching. They weren't distracted. They had open eyes. And they were awake to what God might be doing. They were just keeping watch. And so they got the show of a lifetime. They got a sneak peek on God's master plan. And keeping watch is something that Jesus lets us know is a high value of his. There are certain things that we talk about that Jesus mentions again and again and again throughout the New Testament. And I don't know if we mention enough how often Jesus mentions this value of keeping watch. And I don't know about you, but I personally am very bad at it, so it's convenient we don't talk about it very often. But Jesus tells us again and again to keep watch because we never know when the presence of God could break upon us. In Matthew 25, he tells this story that there were 10 virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come. And five of them had enough lamp oil to meet and go in with the bridegroom. And five of them didn't make it. 
um, he ends the parable with this reminder. He says, so you too must keep watch for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. Or in Mark 13, he tells this other parable. He says, it's like a big house and the master has left and everybody has a job to do. And there's a doorkeeper whose only job is to watch and wait for the master to come home. That's all they do. Um, and he, again, he ends it by this. He says, you don't know when he'll come home, so don't let him show up when you weren't expecting and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, stay alert. What was he asking them to look for? These people, you know, who kept mentioning, stay alert, keep watching. I love the picture that Luke offers in our story about the shepherds of the kind of scene that we could be on the lookout for. Um, in our text, it said, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. He said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. Now, that is something to be on the lookout for. Um, that kind of glory, that kind of wonder gets my heart pumping, um, gets me excited for what God might have to offer me in my world, what his coming might look like. We know that the Spirit of God is alive at work in our world right now. That the same God that beckoned the armies of angels to the shepherds, that same Spirit of God is alive and at work in our world. Um, I was talking to Nick about this earlier, and he said, you know, it's kind of like how when I've got a package coming in the mail, even if I think I might know when it's coming, I look every day to see if it's there. I just can't wait. I can't wait to rip it open and see what's inside. But I don't always have that attitude towards God's presence in my world where I'm just waiting with bated breath for when it might show up and what it might look like and what it would be like to behold it. Um, but Jesus couldn't be more clear. He was begging his audience way back in the first century to pay attention, to watch and wait for God's kingdom coming into our world. And I think what's maybe hard to believe is that that message was relevant then. Even then, people were falling asleep at the wheel. They were preoccupied. They were distracted by what was right in front of them to even see God's kingdom breaking in. Um, and I think that for us, we're so distracted in our world that for a lot of us, we would, I don't know about you, but a lot of us might rather explode three lines of similar candies on our phone than have a moment of silence with ourselves. We'd rather dig through our bag and find our phone to check our emails than have to sit at a stoplight still for just the moment of time until it turns green. We're so distracted. We fight the enemy of boredom at all costs, but at what expense? 
When in fact, boredom, as we've grown to call it, is really just stillness and silence. The very stillness and silence which the armies of heaven offered the birth announcement of the king to a crew of nobodies who just happened to be paying attention. We're numb to the breaking in of God's kingdom into our world because we're terrified of boredom, terrified of silence and stillness. We would prefer to see everyone's gender reveal on Facebook than to keep watch for what might be happening in the world around us. Here's a spoiler alert. It's just going to be one thing or the other, the gender reveal. Every time, it's just going to be one or the other. Um, The shepherds teach us to keep watch, but how do we do it? I'm asking for me because I need this lesson from down and out men as much as anybody in this room. Um, I confess to you that I am guilty of busyness. I'm guilty of packing everything into my schedule until there is not room for anything else. I am guilty of um, looking at my phone the minute that there is a second of silence so that I can escape it and numb my mind and my body to what it might feel like to be still for a minute. I'm guilty of when all the distractions are gone, letting the wheel of my mind spin so freely that there's not room for anything else except my own worries and fears and obsessions and what whatever I let run wild in my mind. So if you're in that boat, you are in good company with me, but nonetheless. Um, That's why, as I reminded us in the beginning, that the shepherds might be from a different place in time, a different class of people than even we understand. Because part of our struggle right now is that with each degree of success that we find in the world, um, the margin for stillness and silence gets thinner and thinner and thinner either because of the demands on our time or our worries about who needs us and what needs us, um, all that has to be done. And when we trade stillness and silence for busyness, I think we miss what we miss out on is grave. It's the opportunity to bear witness to the ways that God's kingdom might be breaking into our own, just like it did on that night that we saw. I know that I don't often find good news or great joy in my busyness. Do you? Um, In my quest to banish boredom, I wonder what it would be like if instead I went looking for great news, for good news and great joy, with open eyes and ears to hear the Spirit of God and how it might be afoot in the world around where God is inviting us into the work of peace on earth that he pronounced to the shepherds. So what do we do as busy people who are afraid of stillness and silence? Um, How do we repent from a life that looks at boredom as enemy number one? Um, The lives that idolize productivity and success and instead lean into Jesus' commandment his encouragement to please keep watch, stay alert, pay attention. Uh, My favorite thoughts on this come from Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans 13, 11 through 13 in the message. It says this, 
but make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of all your day-by-day obligations that you lose track of the time and doze off, oblivious to God. The night is about over. Dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. God is putting the finishing touches on the salvation work he began when we first believed. We can't afford to waste a minute. Must not squander these precious daylight hours in frivolity and indulgence, in sleeping around and dissipation, in bickering and grabbing everything in sight. Get out of bed and get dressed. Don't loiter and linger waiting until the very last minute. Dress yourselves in Christ and be up and about. I love how Paul, as reimagined through the mind of Eugene Peterson, doesn't mince words. Now is the time. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. It's high time for you and I to pay attention to where God's kingdom might be breaking into our world for the coming king. Because um, here's what I'm sure of. A choir of the armies of heaven are not going to be upstaged by Candy Crush. They're just not. So if Candy Crush is what you want, Candy Crush is what you're going to get. They're not going to compete with, a choir of angels is not going to compete with our Facebook feed, with the worries and the preoccupations that take over our minds and hearts when, when stillness and quietness set in. So um, one way that I think that we follow Jesus' warning and words to pay attention is to watch and wait and follow the example of the shepherds is just to do it, just, just to do it. Um, there's not a magic way other than to do it. The shepherds were not doing anything more radical than being still and watching and waiting. And from that stillness came forth the birth announcement of the king. Um, And so I think that the same could hold true for us. And so for me, this means a few things. First, I think I've got to train my schedule towards stillness and silence. What does your schedule look like? Are there times in your life for stillness and silence? Because for me, when my schedule is filled up with other things, that means that I've placed a higher value on everything else I've put in higher than stillness and silence. Um, Second, how do I train... Train my habits toward stillness and silence. Um, you know, what do I do? What are, what are my habits when something, I get an unexpected moment of freedom? When I'm sitting at the table and somebody walks up to go to the bathroom, do I look at my phone? Do I start fidgeting with other things? What are my habits when I get moments of stillness and silence? Am I paying attention Am I alive to what God might be doing in the world around me? What are my habits in my life that are distracting me from where God might be, God's kingdom may be breaking in? Um, And then the the next thing, most importantly for me, is that I have to train my mind towards stillness and silence. What does my mind do when work is over, when I don't, have any distractions in front of me, the TV's off, my phone is not right in front of my face. Um, Because I don't know about for you, but for me, when that happens, it's just like it's open season for my mind to go all over the place and worry about, you know, did I put that thing in the refrigerator? And what am I going to get my husband for Christmas? And, 
You know, did I do that thing that I was supposed to? What do people say about me when I'm not around? What would it be like to win the lottery? Would I get a boat? Would I get three? Who would I give the money to? Would I keep it mostly for myself? You know, like, I don't know if that's what you do. But I think that probably a lot of you do the same thing. And that's why none of us sleep very good. Because when we lay down at night, we start thinking about what we would do if we won the lottery. Our minds have been trained to distraction. Um, And I think that the way that our minds work is they do what they're in the habit of doing. And so if our habits are to move to distraction and busyness, when all else is removed, our minds are just going to do what they're in the habit of doing and run straight to busyness and distraction, even when we don't have anything in front of our face. And I think that God wants to meet us here. I believe that none of us on our own are very good at stillness and silence. Um, Just like Jesus knew as he repeatedly reminded those who would listen to pay attention. Um, But I think that perhaps that God would enter into the fight with us towards stillness and silence. Um, I'm asking you to, with me, resolve to... Follow the example of the shepherds and train our schedules, train our habits, train our minds to watch and wait and ask God to meet us here and train us like the wild stallions that we are at times. Uh, The band can come on up. Uh, As much as I distance us from the shepherds to get a view of the kind of kingdom God was announcing, I think that there is so much hope in putting ourselves squarely in the feet of the shepherds. And realizing that God's kingdom, God's gospel story is for people like us. People like us who didn't do anything to deserve to be here, but God invited nonetheless. People with no reputation to recommend us to the likes of a king, but yet invited to see where God's kingdom might be breaking into our world. Invited to see the glory of a story like we read of angels filling the sky and singing peace on earth. Um, My hope for us is this, is that as we watch and wait and lean into what God might have for us, that we might be like, um, like our kids are as they wait for Santa, as they sit up in their beds and peek out the window, hoping for a chance to see lightning streak across the sky. Kids will wait for hours just on the hope of seeing the magic streak through the sky. And I want to bring that attitude into my own heart. I don't have anything to offer, but I can watch and wait for where God might be breaking into my world. Just as a bonus, Um, as we watch and wait for ways that God's kingdom might be breaking into our world, maybe a fun way to do that is going back to the idea that we started with about the kind of kingdom God was making and who it would be for and the way he valued people at the very bottom of the totem pole in our world. What would it be like as we watch and wait for God's kingdom if any time we encounter people who might fit that bill We ask ourselves, what does this person have to teach me? And where is God's kingdom breaking into my world through this person? Who knows what could happen? But I'm excited to see. I'm going to pray for us. God, thank you so much that um, you come to nobodies like us. 
that your kingdom is not for the people who have earned it, but for the people who know that they haven't. That you flung open the doorways for all of the people who didn't deserve to be there. God, I pray that in this season that you would teach us in your way to watch and wait for how your kingdom could be breaking into our world that you would teach us to look with wonder at how um, you're breaking into our world through the people around us, how your value on people is so different from ours. Pray that you would teach us um, to view the world around us in your eyes as we wait, watch and wait for your kingdom to break in. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.